Now, as we come today to the 18th chapter of Revelation, we see here the judgment of commercial Babylon and the reaction of both earth and heaven to it. We have here in this chapter political and commercial Babylon judged. And in the first eight verses, we have the announcement of the fall of commercial and political Babylon. And then in verses 9 to 19, we have the anguish in the world because of the judgment on Babylon. And 20 to 24, the anticipation of joy in heaven because of the judgment of Babylon. Now, here in chapters 17 and 18, two Babylons are brought before us. The Babylon of chapter 17 is ecclesiastical. The Babylon of chapter 18 is economic. The first is religious, the apostate church that entered the great tribulation period. The second is political and commercial. The commercial center is loved by the kings of the earth. And the apostate church is hated by the kings of the earth, as we saw in chapter 17. The apostate church is destroyed by the kings of the earth. Political Babylon is destroyed by the judgment of God. That is, when Christ comes, this city will be destroyed. Now, obviously, Mystery Babylon is destroyed first in the midst of the Great Tribulation. That's when the apostate church is destroyed, while commercial Babylon is destroyed at the second coming of Christ. Now, these two Babylons are not one in the same city. I personally believe that Mystery Babylon is Rome and that when it goes down in the midst of the Great Tribulation, that the religious center becomes Jerusalem because it's at that place that the false prophet we saw puts up the image of the Antichrist to be worshipped. Now, commercial Babylon is ancient Babylon rebuilt as the commercial capital of the world. This city is the final capital of the political power of the beast. Now, a few years ago, this seemed rather far-fetched, and I'll grant you that it did seem far-fetched, that the power could reach back into the Mideast. But since then, we have experienced in the world today a tightening of the energy. And these Arabs, they just cut off the oil supply. And when they did, why, the whole world felt it. In fact, the matter is, what tremendous power they were wielding. And the wealth of the world is moving even now into that particular area because of the price of oil and the millions and billions of dollars that is flowing into that area. It could well become the great commercial capital of the world. A Jew recently challenged the Israeli minister of tourism out in Australia, and he said to him, how does it come about that all the countries surrounding Israel have oil, but Israel doesn't? And the reply was, God gave the Arabs oil and the Jews the Bible. Would you want to exchange with them? God forbid. The oil will run out quick enough, but the Bible will last forever. 
And this great commercial center that will be ancient Babylon rebuilt will be destroyed by the second coming of Christ. Now, there has been some disagreement among conservative expositors whether ancient Babylon will be rebuilt. Now, very candidly, I for years took the position that it would not be rebuilt. I believe now that it will be rebuilt and that Isaiah 13, 19, and 22 speaks of the fact that ancient Babylon is to be rebuilt and destroyed, and this destruction is what is mentioned in this chapter 18. And uh, actually, it couldn't be built, at least I don't think it could be built, in the same spot because the Euphrates rivers moved about 14 miles from the ancient city. Now, we notice here that there are these two views of the destruction of Babylon, which are diametrically opposed to each other. The viewpoint and perspective are highly important. The reaction of man, of business, and politics is one of great anguish. To them, it's the depth of tragedy. It means a total bankruptcy of big business. But the second reaction is that of heaven. It's one of joy that the holiness and justice of God is vindicated. It means the end of man's sinful career on earth. And this will bring us to the end of the great tribulation period. Now let's get into this chapter here. We have here in the first eight verses the announcement of the fall of commercial and political Babylon. I'm reading now, and I'm reading from my translation. After these things, I saw another angel coming down out of heaven, having great authority, and the earth was lightened with his glory. Now, we have again this very interesting statement, after these things, metatauta. So there has been definitely progress made through this period of these sevens that have been given to us, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven personages, and the seven bowls of wrath. This brings us to the end of the Great Tribulation. Now, John again is still a spectator. He says, I saw. And another angel, that takes us back to chapter 14, where a series of six angels are mentioned with the sole identification of another angel. He is a divine, supernatural messenger of God, but faceless and nameless here. With this exception, this angel is with great authority. It indicates that this angel was of a superior rank to the other, another angels. And he's brought an important message. We're told here that the earth was lightened with his glory. And that, I think, signifies the prestige of this angel. We have that same thing in Ezekiel 43, 2. And I'm not taking time to go back and pick up these Old Testament references because I know many of you now have our second volume on Revelation, and I have all of that in that volume. Now, in verse 2, and I'm reading, and again from my translation, I don't recommend it at all. I do not think that I 
am capable. I'm not a scholar enough to make a translation, and I am weary of the new translations that are coming out. They are very pedantic. They are very, may I say, they are, to me, like eating poi out in the Hawaiian Islands. It's just tasteless and doesn't have the zip that we still have in the King James. Now, let me read, though, mine. And he shouted with a mighty voice, saying, Fell, fell is Babylon the great, and became a habitation of demons, and a prison, or a cage of every unclean spirit, and a cage of every unclean and hated bird. Now, we had the preliminary announcement of the fall of Babylon way back in the 14th chapter, verse 8. The angel here is greater in authority than the one who made the first announcement. But now we've come to it, and fell, fell is Babylon and became. That is called the Greek prophetic aorist tense, which speaks of coming events as if they've already transpired. And far as God is concerned, if he says something's going to happen, you can just say it's happened because it's going to happen. It's just that sure. Now, it's God's plan and program. It's just as though it had already taken place because he knows the end from the beginning. Now, Babylon, this great commercial center of the world, is going to be destroyed. It's a habitation of demons and a cage of every unclean spirit, every unclean and hated bird. Now, it indicates that this is where the demons of the spirit world and unclean birds of the physical world will be incarcerated during the millennium. Isaiah and Jeremiah confirm this. And I give you the reference. I'll not turn to it. Isaiah 13, verses 19 through 22, and Jeremiah 50, 38 through 40. And the very fact that these prophecies of both Isaiah and Jeremiah find a final fulfillment in the destruction of literal Babylon here in Revelation 18. Now, if this is true, then there's no prophecy which forbids Babylon from being rebuilt. Babylon is the headquarters of demons and has been the place of rebellion through the years. Now, verse 3. Let me read my translation. For by the wine of the wrath of her fornication, all the nations have drunk, and the kings of the earth committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth waxed rich by the power of her wantonness. Now, have drunk could be are fallen. Actually, both renderings are permitted, and both have good manuscript authority, and both are true. The normal rendering is have drunk. But this is God's judgment on big business, which denies God's authority. This is the unholy alliance of government and business. And we've seen it in our day as being something that smells to high heaven, very frankly. Now, the word here for merchants means those who travel. It's not those who produce goods or manufacture goods, but those who are brokers engaging in business for a big profit. 
business is a sacred cow that nothing must harm or hinder in these days. And it's true today, of course. Men use business as the biggest excuse for having no time for God. Yet these same men must finally stand before God. God will judge godless commercialism. And big business is in for it, I can assure you that. In fact, they have had a bad, rough time in our day. Now, let me read on. I'll read verse 4. And I heard another voice out of heaven saying, Come forth out of her, my people, that ye have no fellowship with her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. That reveals that God's people are going to be in the world to the very end. Now, this is not the church. They've already been removed before the Great Tribulation. But God has people during this period. The question has always been, will they be able to make it through? Well, they do make it through. He started out the 144,000, and he's going to come through with 144,000. Just like in the parable, the Lord Jesus said that the shepherd started out the 100 sheep. One of them got away, but he didn't come through with 99. He came through with 100 because he went out and got that little sheep that was lost. Now, will you notice, he says here that his people are to come out of this city. And may I say, it's a physical separation here with a corollary in the experience of Lot in Sodom. As Lot was warned to get out of Sodom to escape the deluge of fire, these people of God are warned. And you will find that warning given way back in Deuteronomy, the fourth chapter, verse 30 and 31. Such was also God's warning to Israel. In Jeremiah 51, 5, verses 6, and then 45, in Isaiah 48, 20, the warning is twofold. They are to have no fellowship with the sins of Babylon, and they are to flee before judgment falls. Now, this has, I think, a very pertinent application for us today. I think it should be a warning to us, not that God will not save his own from this hour, but he wants us to be separate, not indulging the old nature, but walking by the Spirit. If we'll not deal with sin here and now in our own lives by confessing and forsaking it, he'll deal with it. Either he will judge it now, or it will meet us at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, God gives us the opportunity of judging our sin today. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11:31, "For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged, but when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world." How can we judge our own sin? Well, we are told in 1 John 1:9, we are to confess it. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And confess means to say the same thing. Homo legeo is the word in Greek. It means to say what God says about it. You know, we make excuses for ourselves. We say it's not sin in our lives. Of course, if our neighbor did it, it'd be sin. But God says it's sin, and until you and I are willing to call it sin, 
we haven't confessed it at all, or if we try to excuse it and pass it by. It means to say, God, I agree with you about this thing. But if we refuse to judge ourselves, God will judge us. That is, believers at the judgment seat of Christ. The sin of some folk will not be settled until the judgment seat of Christ. Personally, I hope to get all my accounts straightened out down here, because God may not take us to the woodshed immediately it does not mean that he's letting us get by with sin. No one is getting by who's a child of God today. Judgment is coming to you if you're his child. Now, he doesn't spank the devil's children. Now, verse 5, "...for her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities." Now, Babylon has a long history of accumulated sins. One of the oldest cities in the history of mankind, and probably mentioned more than any other city in the Bible except Jerusalem. And finally, judgment breaks like a flood upon this city and its system. The judgment of God may be delayed, but it's sure. It may seem to us that the unbelievers getting by with sin, but God's judgment is coming. Now, verse 6, "...render unto her even as she also rendered, and double unto her the double according to her works, in the cup which she mingled, mingle unto her double." Now, this is poetic justice. The cup of iniquity is being filled to the brim. When the last drop is poured in, it's pressed to the lips of those who committed iniquity. And my friends, this is just. Read Psalm 137. God is righteous and just in what he does. Now, verse 7 in my translation. How much soever she glorified herself and waxed wanton, that is, lived in luxury, and lived it up, too, by the way. So much give her of torment and mourning, for she saith in her heart, I sit a queen, and am no widow, and shall in no wise see mourning. You see, the prosperity of Babylon blinded her to the judgment of God. Trading was active on the stock market. And everyone bought blue-chip issues right up to the moment of judgment. Luxury, arrogance, pride, sin, and self-deception characterized the spirit of this godless city. World peace was in sight, and optimism was the spirit of the day. Only the prophets of gloom issued a warning, and they were classified as squares, as was Noah. And so was Vernon McGee, by the way. Now, verse 8. Let me read that in my translation. I can't get away from it. Therefore, in one day shall her plagues come, death and mourning and famine, and she shall utterly be burned up with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judged her. Now, this calls to our attention the suddenness of destruction and that it will be by fire. So great is her grief that mourning is counted a plague along with death and famine. Death, mourning, and famine are the three horsemen who ride roughshod over Babylon. The destruction is total and final. 
in the Scriptures, this is the first city of prominence, but its long, eventful, and sinful history ends, and it's finally judged here. And strong is the Lord God who judged her. It's God who destroys this city because he alone is able to do so. He does so, we believe, at the return of Christ to the earth. And it's, as Isaiah put it in the 63rd chapter, "...who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength, I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save." Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me. For I will tread them in mine anger, and trample them in my fury. And their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. In his second coming, Christ is seen coming from Edom with blood-sprinkled garments. I believe he has come by Babylon, and he's executed judgment on that wicked city. And we are going to see the second coming when we get to the next chapter, the 19th chapter. Notice we are told that now as we come to verse 9. And we see the anguish in the world because of the judgment on Babylon. And I'm reading now from my translation, which I could not recommend, but at least we're bringing out the original. And the kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived deliciously, that is, in luxury with her, shall weep and wail over her. When they look upon the smoke of her burning, standing afar off for the fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city, Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour is thy judgment come. Now, in this day, that is, the day that's spoken of here, Babylon will dominate and rule the world. She'll have the first total dictatorship. That is, Antichrist will be dictator of the world, and the world will become an awful place. In that day, everything will center in Babylon. The stock market will be read from Babylon, not New York. Babylon will set the styles for the world, not Paris. A play to be successful will have to be a success in Babylon, not London. And everything in the city is in rebellion against Almighty God, and it centers in Antichrist. No one dreamed that this great city would be judged. Yet by the time the sun went down, Babylon was nothing but smoldering ruins. When the news goes out, the world is stunned. And then begins the wail. The whole world will howl. When Babylon goes down, if you were on the moon, you'd have to tune down your earphones, so loud would be the how. Now, we saw in chapter 17 that the kings of the earth hated religious Babylon, and with Antichrist got rid of it in order that he might be worshipped. 
because he didn't want any competition even in the area of religion. And they all destroyed her. But here in chapter 8, we see that the kings of the earth love commercial Babylon because of the revenue she brought to their coffers. In fact, it's called here fornication. And you can't have a better word for it than that. And all of the lobbyists were in Babylon, not Washington. They were there representing all the great corporations of the world and the unions and about every organization in the world had lobbyists there. And this is an unholy alliance of politics and big business. They desert Babylon like rats leaving a sinking ship. Their mourning is both pathetic and contemptible. They eulogize her with panegyrics of praise, but there is a hopelessness in their anguish. They marvel at the sudden destruction of that which they thought was guilt-edged security. And the judgment came in the space of one hour, reminding us of the sudden devastation caused by an atomic explosion. This is a frightful picture that's presented to us here. And this is the final conflagration and catastrophic judgment that will bring Christ to the earth to set up his kingdom. And let me read now this section. You talk about the effect upon mankind. Listen to this. And the merchants of the earth shall weep and moan over her, for no man buyeth their merchandise any more. The merchandise of gold and silver and precious stones and of pearls and of fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and all fine wood and all manner of vessels of ivory and all manner of vessels of most precious wood and of brass and iron and marble and cinnamon and odors and ointments and frankincense and wine and oil and fine flour and wheat and beasts and sheep and horses and chariots and slaves, and the souls of men, and the fruits that thy soul lusted after are departed from thee, and all things which were dainty and goodly are departed from thee, and thou shalt find them no more at all. The merchants of these things which were made rich by her shall stand afar off for the fear of her torment weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, for in one hour so great riches is come to naught. Now, as I read from verses 11 through 17 here, did you feel like you might be walking down the main street of some of our great cities? That is, that you were in the main shopping area, and you were window shopping, and in the windows you see all of these things today. These are products of an affluent society. And the interesting thing is, these were available in the Roman Empire of John's day. Everything that is listed here is a luxury item. Babylon will make these luxury items necessities just as today the items that, well, we think they're necessities. I remember reading not long ago when the first bathtub 
was introduced in this country. And do you know who opposed it more than anyone else? was the doctors. They said it would shorten life (laughs) if you took a bath every day. Once a week or once a month was enough. And the bathtub was just a luxury that you couldn't afford. Well, when we go to a motel, a hotel today, my wife looks to see if there's a tub there, and I look to see if there's a shower. And generally, there's both present. We live in a luxury age, but everything we call necessities are actually luxuries. That is, most of them. Now, let's look at these. I'm taking them up separately. The merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her, for no man buyeth their merchandise or cargo anymore. Merchandise of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls. My, you talk about a depression. They're having one here. You see, we're in the jewelry department here. And then we leave the jewelry department and we go over to the latest ready-to-wear department. And fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet. And then we move to the luxury gift department. And all fine are rather citron wood. And every vessel of ivory and every vessel made of most precious wood and of brass and iron and marble. Now we move on to the spice and cosmetic department, and cinnamon and spice and odors and ointment and frankincense. They had a great deal of spray deodorant, you see, the kind that works 24 hours a day, so the advertisement on TV says. But here it all is. Now we go to the liquor department and the pastry center and wine, and oil, and fine flour, and wheat. This is the food of the rich. You see, barley was the food of the poor in that day. All of this is what the rich were living on. They were living high on the hog, eating high on the hog. They were having it fine until Babylon went down. Now, will you notice we move to the meat department, where you can get porterhouse steaks and filet mignon, and also lamb chops. Notice this, and cattle and sheep. Then the merchandise covers every phase of business. The articles are for a society accustomed to the better things of the material universe. Even men were bought and sold, including their souls. My friend today, I think that's becoming more and more true where Great corporations have men on the payroll that don't dare move or leave. They're bound there, and they're almost like slaves today. Right now, there's many a woman that's selling her soul, and they get a good price, too, by the way. The articles here are articles for a society that's been living high. And not only that, and merchandise of horses and chariots and slaves, bodies and souls of men. The merchants of these things who grew rich by her, they'll stand afar off because of the fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas. Now, that in the Greek is a word that you don't even need to translate it to get the meaning. It's ooi, ooi, and that sounds better than alas to me. Ooh, I, ooh, I, for the great city. Ooh, I, 
you see, is, I think, sounds better. Why, the very sound of the word, ooh, is a form of wailing. And the merchants of the earth sit before their TV screens and cry, ooh, I, ooh, I, for in one hour wealth so great was laid desolate. We also have been able to find a parallel in the Old Testament. Do we have anything that corresponds to this in the past? I think so. Ezekiel predicted the judgment of Tyre, the capital of the Phoenicians, and Tyre was to the ancient world what New York City is today and Babylon is to the future. You read Ezekiel 26 and 27. Now I'm reading beginning at the last part of verse 17. And every shipmaster and every one that sails anywhere, that is traveler, and sailors, and those who live by seafaring, stood afar off and cried out when they looked upon the smoke of a burning, saying, What city is like the great city? And they cast dust upon their heads and cried, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, ooh-ay, ooh-ay, the great city, wherein all that had their ships in the sea were made rich by reason of her costly expenditure. For in one hour is she made desolate. Now, the third delegation of mourners here is composed of those that are engaged in transportation, the great public carriers. They had become rich by transporting the merchandise of Babylon, just as Phoenicia had done in the ancient world. Now, there's no more business. They mourned because of the Depression. All went up in smoke in a moment. They, like the others, marvel at the sudden destruction. All of this you see, does have an application for us. How do we see the luxury of this world? Do we see it as it really is? We speak today about spirituality and spiritual things, and even in our Christian organizations, there is almost an overweening zeal to get out and try to get people to give, and especially to approach the wealthy people. We're paying too much attention to this world today. It's passing away. And the things that you see at your fingertips are passing away. You remember the disciples said to the Lord Jesus, Don't you see these wonderful buildings of the temple? The Lord Jesus said, Do you see them? Why, well, said, Not one stone is going to be left upon another. That was literally fulfilled. And this world that you live in, this great Los Angeles that we live in, and I think it's a great city, and in many ways, a wonderful city. I've enjoyed living here most of my life. But it's passing away. God's going to judge this place. But the question is, would it break your heart if you saw the things of this world go up in smoke? Or is your heart today in heaven fixed on Christ? It does make a lot of difference. Now we come to that section, the anticipation of joy in heaven because of the judgment of Babylon, verses 20 to 24 now. And we finish this chapter. Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and ye saints, and ye apostles, and ye prophets, for God hath judged your judgment on her. Now you see the viewpoint of heaven is entirely different. It's no funeral procession there. Rather, it's the celebration of an anticipated event. The saints prayed for it. The prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles of the New Testament predicted it. 
Now all is fulfilled, and there is joy, for God has exonerated his name, and judgment has come upon these things. Just what, by the way, is your heart fixed on today? Make a lot of difference in that day, because you'll either be with the mourners, or you're going to be with the rejoicers. Verse 21 now, and again in our translation, "...and one strong angel took of a stone like a great millstone, cast it into the sea, saying, Thus with a mighty rush shall Babylon, the mighty city, be cast down, and shall be found no more at all. Even heaven calls our attention to the violence and the suddenness and the complete annihilation of Babylon, like a stone that makes a big splash and then disappears beneath the waves. Will Babylon come to an end? This world you and I are living in is going to be judged. Here it is recorded for us. Now, will you notice verses 22 and 23, "...and the voice of harpers and minstrels and flute players and trumpeters shall be heard no more at all in thee." The rock music will be going out of style then. And I say thank God for that. If they don't destroy Babylon for any other purpose than to get rid of it, then I say, let's get rid of it. And we're just now getting around to that. And no more craftsmen of whatever craft shall be found any more at all in thee. And the voice of a mill shall no more be heard at all in thee. All the factors are going to close down. And the light of a lamp shall shine no more at all in thee. All the neon lights will go out on Broadway." And the voice of the bridegroom and the bride shall be heard no more at all in thee. It's all over. No more marrying and giving in marriage here. For thy merchants were the princes of the earth. For with thy sorcery were all the nations deceived. And I believe that more and more we're going to see sorcery, magic, and this matter of demonism and Satanism will increase more and more as we draw near to the end of the age. And it will be that that's going to deceive and blind people, just as many today are blinded by this. They see all of the show, the physical things, and they begin to judge a spiritual work of the size of the church, by the buildings, by how up-to-date it is. When, after all, that is about the worst way, I think, to judge any spiritual work. And popular music comes to an end in Babylon. Jazz and rock and roll and hard rock cease in the destruction. Classical music will be stilled also. The crafts that have been prostituted to the service of the Antichrist will end. The wheels of the factories will never turn again. The bright lights of Broadway and of Hollywood will go out forever. It's interesting to note the beginning of all these things as recorded way back in Genesis. The social life and family life shall end. The great tycoons of big business will disappear. This city deceived the world with the worship of Antichrist and this is the strong delusion. Now we are told, "...and in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all that were slain upon the earth." God's people got rough treatment in this city, but God judged it. This is Satan's city. He's a murderer. 
And this city murdered. The final crime was the slaying of God's people. As we contemplate the destruction of Babylon, we think of other great cities and civilizations of the past that have fallen. Gibbon, Edward Gibbon, in 1788, wrote The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. He said that there were five basic reasons why that great civilization withered and died. Let me give them quickly. First, the undermining of the dignity and sanctity of the home, which is the basis for human society. Number two, higher and higher taxes, the spending of public money for free bread and circuses for the populace. Three, the mad craze for pleasure, sports becoming every year more exciting, more brutal, more immoral. And fourth, the building of great armaments when the real enemy was within, the decay of individual responsibility. And fifth, the decay of religion, faith fading into mere form, losing touch with life, losing power to guide the people. And the oft-heard warning that history repeats itself has an ominous meeting in the light of the above. And you can already see these five things at work in our contemporary culture in this country today. And it will be the thing that will bring down Babylon at the end because of the fact these are the things that destroy a nation and the home and the individual. And thank God, this sad story of man's sin will come to an end. And I want us to take a recapitulation of this seven-year period very briefly, and then we're going to sing the Hallelujah Chorus. And it'll be terrible if I sing it now, but in that day, I'm going to be able to sing it and join you in the choir. Now, in chapter 18, there was brought to a conclusion this frightful period labeled by the Lord Jesus Christ the Great Tribulation Period. This next chapter, the one we're coming to now, we see him coming to the earth to bring to an end this dismal, dark, doleful, and disastrous period. This is the negative aspect of his coming. The positive side is the dawning of the day of the Lord, labeled in chapter 20, the millennium, or the thousand years. Now, let's take a final look at the Great Tribulation period with its catastrophic and cataclysmic events taking place in rapid succession like a machine gun firing. The total period is seven years. It is the 70th week of Daniel. And Daniel divided it in the Old Testament and John in the New Testament, right here in Revelation, into two separate and equal periods of three and a half years. Now, Antichrist comes to power as the world dictator on the platform of peace, prosperity, and plenty. He brings about in the first period radical changes that seem to benefit mankind. He'll bring in a false peace. All governments and religions are to be controlled by him. It'll be one world, one religion, one everything. 
the world will believe they are entering the millennium, and the world will become a utopia. That's what they think. But this is part of the big lie of that period. The true church, the body of Christ, they were removed before the great tribulation began. They are to become the bride of Christ. And we're going to see the bride shortly in this book. And Israel again becomes God's witness on earth. 144,000 strong, sealed by the Spirit of God, and they witness here upon the earth. There's also a great company of Gentiles that are sealed. But somewhere near the middle of the seven-year period, the king of the north, we believe it's Russia, moves against Israel. And God judges Russia as he did Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you want that picture, see Ezekiel 38. It'll be the same way. Now, this opens the floodgates of war, for Antichrist now begins to move. And the deception, I think, will become apparent to a great many folk. Restless mankind under the control of Satan begins to march, and the world begins to fall apart like an overripe pear. The man of sin, Antichrist, breaks his covenant with the nation Israel. The Mideast has become the center of world's activity in this period. Babylon has become the religious capital of the world, and that's Jerusalem, and it is called Babylon in the first chapter of Isaiah. And the political capital is another place, as we have seen. Antichrist began in Rome, and the false prophet in Jerusalem. And Antichrist, when he comes to world power, rebuilds Babylon. And we see, therefore, that the apostate church is destroyed by Antichrist and the kings of the earth who are subservient to him. Ancient Babylon on the Euphrates has become the political and economic center of the world. If a few Arab nations can turn the spigots and stop the flow of oil and by so doing can bring the world to its knees in our day, think what it'll be when ancient Babylon in that very land becomes again the world's center. New York City will then be a whistle stop on the Tunerville trolley. It won't be worth a string of glass beads. The Indians really drove a hard bargain with the white man when they demanded several strings of beads. They got more than it was worth. Los Angeles will return to an adobe village and will no longer be the city of angels, but the dwelling place of demons. By the way, they're beginning to move in today, it seems to me. London and the other great cities of today will become villages with muddy streets and natives with muddy feet. Judgments from God will fall swift and sudden upon a God-rejecting and blaspheming world. At one fell swoop, one-fourth of the population of the world is destroyed, and at another, one-third is blotted out. Nature is afflicted. The grass of the earth, the trees of the land, the fish and commerce of the seas, and the rivers will run dry. All are destroyed. 
the sun, moon, and stars are in convulsion. One disaster after another falls on the earth. But the hard heart of man is still unrepentant, and he defies and blasphemes the God of heaven. Then armies march toward Israel. For three and a half years the war rages. It's not the battle of Armageddon, but the war of Armageddon. Millions of men are marching at that time in that land, and they're engaged in the conflict, and they're destroyed there, blood up to the bridle bits, three feet deep, and that will be no exaggeration. And into this horrible arena of chaos, of man's making and Satan's scheming, comes the King of kings and Lord of lords. Yes, the King is coming to the earth, friends. But before all of this can take place, his church must be removed to be with him and to come with him to the earth. Now, we are not looking for the fulfillment of any of these things that we've looked at from chapter 4 through chapters 18. In fact, the rest of Revelation is still future. We're looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I do not have the date, and I do not even know the period in which he'll come. It may be soon. It could be today, even before I finish this broadcast. But it may not be for a hundred years, even several hundred years. No one can say for certainty or be sure anyone who sets a date, fixes a period, is entirely out of order and must be out of his mind. Or at least he has information that's not in the Word of God. And I think everything that's happening is significant. We live in a great period in the history of the world. But I think all we can say is, now is our salvation nearer than when we first believed. I remember the late Dr. Bill Anderson in Dallas, Texas, used to put it like this. God is getting the stage all set today. It looks like he's coming soon. And since it would take a lot of doing to get it in position again, if he's not coming today, he says, you know, if I were the Lord, I'd come on and take the church out of the world so I wouldn't have to get it in this position again and have all that trouble. Well, we are ready for him to come. He may come any moment. We don't know. We have no information. But all of this takes place after the church is removed from the earth. And we are given no signs today. We do see the setting of this stage for all of these things to take place. I think it's very significant that Western Europe is looking for a man to put it together. Western Europe's like Humpty Dumpty. Fell off a wall, had a great fall. And all the king's men, all the king's horses can't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. But Antichrist is coming one of these days. They're waiting for him over there now. And there is a great power in the north. It's Russia. Egypt is coming alive again. China as Napoleon said, is a great giant, and God pitied the generation that wakes it up. Well, we did the waking, and I tell you, God pity us. That's where the population is today. 
And they're going to come marching out of that area one of these days. And then Israel is in the land. That is the crowning setting of the stage. And it looks like it could begin tomorrow. But as far as the church is concerned, it could have begun 1,800 years ago, 1,000 years ago, but it didn't. And it may not be today because we're given no sign. Now today, friends, our study brings us to the 19th chapter of the book of Revelation, the great event that concerns us, the marriage of the Lamb and the return of Christ and judgment. And we have here in this chapter, first, four hallelujahs. That's verses 1 to 6. Then we have the bride of the Lamb and the marriage supper, verses 7 through 10. Then in the third division, the return of Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords. My, what a thrilling chapter this is. That's verses 11 through 16. And then the battle of Armageddon. I'm going to change that. I have it in my book, Battle, but it should be War of Armageddon, verses 17 and 18. And then hell opened in verses 19 to 21. My friend, there's a whole lot of things in this chapter. Now, we turn the page on that which marks a drastic change in the tone of Revelation. The destruction of Babylon, the capital of the beast's kingdom, mark the end of the great tribulation. The somber now gives way to the song. The transfer is from darkness to light, from the inky blackness of night to white light, from dreary days of judgment to bright days of blessing. This chapter makes a definite bifurcation in the book of Revelation and ushers in the greatest event for this earth, the second coming of Christ to the earth to establish his kingdom. And it's the bridge between the great tribulation and the millennial kingdom that he'll establish on the earth. Now, great and significant events are recorded here. And the two central features are the marriage of the Lamb and the return of Christ to the earth. And one follows the other. Now, the hallelujahs open this chapter. And the opening of hell concludes it. Two great suppers are recorded. The marriage supper of the Lamb and the cannibalistic feast of carrion after the last part of the war of Armageddon. Now we come to the four hallelujahs, the first six verses. We're going to sing here now the hallelujah chorus. Well, maybe I better not sing, because if I started singing the hallelujah chorus at this point, You'd think we were in the Great Tribulation period. So we're not going to be able to sing it till we get to this point, by the way. And then I will be able to sing. Verse 1, After these things I heard, as it were, a great voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power unto the Lord our God. Now, you noticed I read from my translation. After these things, metatata again. You see, when we bumped into that expression, actually, John gave the division of the book. The things that shall be after these things. After what things? The church. And it began with chapter 4. It opened with metatata. And we've been metatata and ever since. And here... There is a chronological progression. 
You have here a sequence of events. What takes place after the Great Tribulation? Well, what's recorded in this chapter? The coming of Christ to the earth. He's the only one that can end it. So it brings us to the end of the Great Tribulation, and this is the last occurrence. Now, a great multitude, we're told, the voice of a great multitude, and some have been added to what we had back in chapters 5 and 7. Back there we had, you will recall, the elders, the church is there, and uncounted number of angels created intelligences, and they all worship God. All right, now there have been a great company of tribulation saints added to the chorus, and now they're going to sing. And here is something that is quite marvelous. This is hallelujah. Did you know it's the first time it's occurred in the New Testament? And it occurs four times in these first six verses, and it's the only occurrence in the New Testament. You see, this business of hallelujah is reserved for the final victory. And it's interesting to note that hallelujah occurs frequently in the book of Psalms. And it just simply means praise the Lord. It appears in frequent succession in Psalm 146 to Psalm 150. In fact, Psalm 150 is a mighty crescendo of praise. And I think that's what they're going to be singing. Hallelujah, I think, is a fitting note of praise at this juncture in Revelation. Great tribulation is over. Jesus is coming. The church is to be united to Christ in marriage. Hallelujah, friends. Let's sing it. Handel's Messiah will be sung at this season of the year. And I don't care whose choir sings it. My, they're not even going to touch the rim of the greatness of it in this day. Psalm 104:35 says this, Let the sinners be consumed out of the earth, and let the wicked be no more. What does that mean? It says, Bless thou the Lord, O my soul, Praise ye the Lord. That is, hallelujah, because God is coming to judge, and the wicked are going to be removed from this earth. And I'm for that. I hope you are too. Now, in my book on Revelation, on page 67, it says, hallelujah is an expletive of praise as the final phase of salvation is coming to pass. And that is something Paul had talked about. And I think I'll just turn to it. Over in Romans 8, beginning with verse 18, listen to this. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now, and not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our bodies. And friends, this is that great day that's coming. The earth will be released from the bondage of sin. But in the meantime, it groans. 
mountains, to go down to the seashore, anywhere, and listen to the waves break. I slept right by the Atlantic Ocean in Virginia Beach, and every night I was put to sleep by the breaking of those waves on the shore. They're just sobbing out, as it were. There's no high note at all. And then you go up to the mountains out here in California and listen at night to the wind blowing through the pine trees. There's not a soprano in all those pine trees, and there's not a redwood tree that can sing soprano. It's all subdued. It's groaning. All of it's groaning, waiting for this day that's coming someday upon the earth. And we groan. I don't know about you. When I first built my home up here in Altadena, I was a young man, and I could come bounding down the stairs. When I come down now at every step, I groan. My wife says, you ought not to groan. I tell her, it's scriptural to groan. We groan within these bodies, the Scripture says. And I'm for groaning while we're here. But one day, friends, it's going to be hallelujah and not groaning. And that's what he's talking about in this passage of Scripture here. Now, friends, as we come to the second verse of the 19th chapter. We are in this very wonderful chapter in which we see the wedding. We're going to a wedding, by the way, the marriage of the Lamb to the church and the marriage supper. And then we're going to see the second coming of Christ to the earth. But before we do that, we've got to sing the hallelujah chorus. Now, we only got in one hallelujah last time, but we're going to get in two right here now in verses 2 through 4. And I'm reading in my translation. For true and righteous are his judgments, for he hath judged the great harlot who formerly corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And the second time they said, Hallelujah, and her smoke goeth up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God that sitteth on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. Now, here we have the third Hallelujah. It's quite interesting to note here that in the midst of all these judgments now, and at the conclusion of them, that those in heaven who have more perfect knowledge than you and I have, they are able to say that God's judgments are true and they're right. They're righteous judgments. If you don't think what God is doing is right, it's because you are wrong, not God. And your thinking is incomplete, of course, as mine is. Now, God is right. And he was right when he judged this great harlot. Now, that's interesting because when we read about the judgment of it, it was the kings of the earth and the Antichrist that destroyed that false apostate church that went into the great tribulation. And yet, we're told he judged it. Well, you see, God uses instruments, and he'll even use the devil to accomplish his purpose. And that's what you have here that that church should be destroyed. And it was destroyed because it was guilty of making martyrs. They had put to death a great many. On the basis of that, 
we find here that the 24 elders are mentioned. This is the church now. This is before the wedding, remember. And this is the picture of the church in heaven. And the church in heaven is singing hallelujah. Why? They did it twice here. They're singing a hallelujah chorus. As long as the imposter of the true church, that great harlot, is on the earth, the marriage of the Lamb will not take place in heaven. And the anti-church is disposed of first, and that makes way for the marriage of the Lamb. And I think that the marriage of the Lamb takes place in heaven about the middle of the tribulation that's happening on earth, you see. And we find here her destruction avenges the blood of all the martyrs. You see, believers are forbidden to avenge themselves, although some of us try to take it in our own hands. But the minute that we do, we forsake the walk of faith, because he has said to us in Romans 12:19, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. God will take care of that department for you. If you've been injured, and many of us have, we want to hit back. That's natural. That's the old natural man. But the interesting thing is that we're to turn that department over to God. He doesn't intend to let anyone get by with it. Vengeance is his. And here he brings judgment on this apostate system. Now, the 24 elders, for the first time here, you see, they sing hallelujah. And this is going to be the last time the elders will appear, because next time we see the church. She's no longer represented. She's there as the bride of Christ. She's to be joined to him. We'll see that. I hope we get to it today. Now, verses 5 and 6, we'll sing our last hallelujah. And I'm reading from my translation. And a voice came forth from the throne, saying, Give praise to our God, all ye his servants, ye that fear him, the small and the great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as it were, the voice of many waters, and as it were, the voice of mighty thunders, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigneth. And when he reigns, It'll be time to sing hallelujah. Now, the call comes directly from the throne to praise God because the Lord Jesus Christ is preparing to take control of the world. And this is truly the hallelujah chorus. And I think this is the most profound pen of praise so far that we've had in the entire Word of God. It takes you all the way back to that covenant God made with David. I'm going to raise one up on your throne that'll rule the world. And until he comes, there'll be wars and rumors of wars. And there'll be sin on earth. But when he comes, he's going to judge. Now he's going to come. But before he comes, there's going to be a wedding. Let's go to that. We'll be part of it, by the way. Now we have the bride of the Lamb and the marriage supper, verses 7 and 8. Will you notice this carefully? Let us rejoice and be exceeding glad, and let us give the glory unto him. For the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And it was given unto her that she should array herself in fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous acts 
of the saints. Now, I think this is the most thrilling experience that the church will ever have and that believers will have. The church, the body of believers, all the way from Pentecost to the Parousia, there's presented now as a bride to Christ in marriage. And the marriage takes place in heaven. And this is a heavenly scene, too, by the way. And that's the reason that Paul emphasized down here that the marriage of believers... And by the way, when Paul is talking in the fifth chapter of Ephesians about the husband and the wife and all the relationships, he's talking about those that are filled with the Spirit. In other words, he says, be filled with the Spirit, and these are the things that will flow from that. And you couldn't have a Christian home without a Spirit-filled husband and a Spirit-filled wife. And frankly, I just don't believe that you can have a real Christian home and know what real love is until both of you are believers. Now, will you listen to this? Ephesians 5, 25, 27. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Now, that's the picture of the relationship of Christ and the church. Now, we're living in the day of new morality, and I'll sound like a square, but I'm not going around in circles, I'll tell you that. Did you know that today we've had an avalanche of sex, and this generation knows a great deal about sex? I watched a young couple down at Palm Springs, and I felt so sorry for this boy and this girl, necking like nobody's business, right in public. And I thought, what does that little girl and that little boy really know about love and what it really means for a man to love a woman and a woman to love a man? I'm afraid that there are a great many Christians don't know about that today. And many of you, especially you husbands, you remember the first time that you looked at your wife and she was yours. You'd been joined in marriage and she's now yours. Wasn't that a thrilling moment for you? And you remember, wife, when you looked up at that old ugly boy that you married, and you thought he was so wonderful, and he put his arms around you. Wasn't that a thrilling moment for you? Well, may I say here, you have a picture of that day when Christ is going to draw us to himself, cleansed and purified. And young lady, young man, that's the reason in this day of new morality that you should bring purity to the marriage altar. God have mercy on some of you fellows that are marrying second-hand girls. Don't get them at the second-hand store. Get them brand new. It's lots better that way. Now, here is a marvelous picture of the church and of Christ. Be joined together in that day. And it's just the church. 
You remember even John the Baptist, he designated himself as a friend of the bridegroom. He says the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. says, I'm just a friend. And the bride occupies a unique position to Christ. You see, he loved the church. He gave himself for it. And you remember what he said in that great high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 23 to 26. Let me read this. I and them and thou and me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world, O righteous Father, The world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me, and I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. That is something that is so wonderful here, to know him. We're going to know him, actually, for the first time. But let's look at something else. We're told here, The wedding gown of the church is the righteous acts of the saints. Now, this is a difficult concept to accept, for it's impossible, you see, for us to stand before Christ in our own righteousness. Paul wrote, "...and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith." That's in Philippians 3, 9. You see, by faith we can trust Christ, not only for forgiveness of sins, but for the impartation to us of his righteousness. Then why does John say that the wedding garment is the righteous acts of the saint? Well, you see, a wedding gown is used but once. We will be clothed with the righteousness of Christ throughout eternity. We as believers will appear before the judgment seat of Christ Not to be judged about our sins in reference to salvation, but for rewards. Now, through the ages, believers have been performing righteous acts which are accumulating to adorn the wedding gown. By the way, I don't mean to be personal, but what are you doing to adorn that wedding gown? What are you doing for the Lord today? Paul said again in 1 Corinthians 3.12, Now, if any man build upon this foundation, that is, of Christ, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Now, if any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward." You see, gold, silver, and precious stones will survive the fire. Wood and stubble will go up in smoke. Now, the good works, therefore, are the wedding garment of the church. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, under good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2.10. Now, after the wedding, the wedding dress is laid aside. And we've already seen that the elders place their crowns at the feet of the Lamb, proclaiming that he alone is worthy. You see, the church will reveal his glory, not their glory. 
We are told again in Ephesians 2, 7, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. We'll be on display. Sinners saved from hell, if you please, in heaven now. We'd have no right there if we didn't have his right and if we didn't belong to him. You see, the relationship of Christ and the church, it's intimate, it's different. It's delightful. No other creature in God's universe will enjoy such sweetness as we will someday. Now, verses 9 and 10, and I'm reading, And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they that are bidden, invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true words of God. And I fell down before his feet to worship him, and he saith unto me, See thou do it not, I am a fellow servant with thee and with thy brethren that hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, the marriage of the Lamb, will you hear me carefully now? The marriage of the Lamb takes place in heaven, but the marriage supper takes place on earth. And the picture is in Matthew 25, Verses 1 through 13, the parable of the ten virgins. You see, they were not the bride. He has only one bride. That's the church. And these ten virgins were waiting after the marriage. You see, the bridegroom returns to the earth for the marriage supper, not only to judge the earth, but for the marriage supper. And the ten virgins were expecting to attend. And that's another picture of this scene back in Psalm 45. You see, Christ is seen coming as king, and the queen is there. Well, you're not told who she is, but we're told king's daughters were among thy honorable women. Upon thy right hand did stand the queen in the gold of Ophir. I think that's a picture, a symbol, a type of the church. And guests are present. The daughter of Tyre shall be there with a gift. Even the rich among the people shall entreat thy favor. You see the marriage suppers here on this earth. Now, both Israel and Gentiles who enter the millennium are the invited guests. And the marriage supper is evidently the millennium. And you talk about a long supper, that's going to be a long one. At the end of the millennium, the church is still seen as the bride. Imagine a honeymoon that lasts a thousand years. And friends, that's only the beginning. Oh, what joy! What ecstasy! The angel puts God's seal on this scene. These things are the true words of God. And then after acting as a scribe for this scene, John feels compelled to worship the angelic messenger. However, he's restrained from doing so. The angel is but a creature. Only God is to be worshipped. What a rebuke to Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet who wanted to be worshipped. And there are a lot of folk like that today. Now we come to the return of Christ to the earth. Friends, the king is coming, but not until we get to this place here. He's going to take his church out. There'll be the great tribulation period, the marriage of the church to Christ. The church now is the bride, you see. No longer call the church. The bride of Christ. And the bride will come to the earth with the king, and they'll have a marriage supper down here upon the earth. And that, I think, is going to be the millennium. What a supper. What a honeymoon. 
What a glorious day is ahead of us if we could just only get our eyes from off the muck and mire of this earth in which we live and get it on things eternal. We have here the return of Christ now as King of kings and Lord of lords. What a thrilling scene this is. I'm going to read now verses 11 and 12. And I saw the heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness doth he judge and make war. Now his eyes a flame of fire, upon his head many diadems, having a name written which none knew but himself. May I say, when I even just read this passage of Scripture, it makes goose pimples come out all over me. What a thrill and scene this is. The king is coming, but he's coming at this time after these events that we've been looking at have transpired. This is the great climactic event toward which all things in this world are moving today. And the contrast to his first coming, it is remarkable. Oh, what a contrast. Now, friends, it's well for us to understand where this fits in. That is, the return of Christ to the earth. This very thrilling, climactic event toward which all things are moving today. We had in this book the history of the church from the day of Pentecost to the Parousia, and when he takes the church out of the world. And from chapter 4 on through chapter 18, we were in the midst of the great tribulation period, frightful period. And it is ended by the coming of Christ here to the earth to establish his kingdom. Now, there has been in the past a very naive notion relative to the future, that one of these days that Jesus is going to come and all the dead will be raised and the good guys, they are on this side, and the bad guys, they're on the other side. And that he makes the division and one enters heaven, the other hell, and eternity begins. May I say again, that's a very naive notion. You can't read the Word of God without being conscious of the fact that he has a plan and a program for this earth that he is following, and he's following it very definitely. And the program is as we've outlined it, and now this takes place at the end of the Great Tribulation and right before the establishment of the kingdom. And again, I say this is the great climactic event toward which all things are moving today. And the contrast to his first coming is something that is stupendous. It is absolutely most remarkable. You see, when he came the first time, as George McDonough put it, they were looking for a king to lift them high. He came a little baby thing that made a woman cry. And that's the way he entered the world before. He was meek and lowly. He was the Savior who died for sinners. Now he's coming in great glory, public manifestation, putting down unrighteousness. And this is the final manifestation of the wrath of God upon a sinful world. The rebellion of Satan and demons and of mankind is contained now and put down and judged 
He puts down all unrighteousness before he establishes his kingdom in righteousness. Heaven is opened in Revelation 4.1 to let John, as a representative of the church, enter heaven where he sees the elders that is the church already there. And here heaven opens to let Christ exit. And the white horse on which he rides is the animal of warfare. When Jesus was on earth, he rode into Jerusalem upon a little donkey. And that was the animal of kings, but it always denoted peace and not war. He's coming now, and he's riding a white horse, which speaks of warfare. Now, he's called faithful because he's come to execute the long-time program of God. All that was predicted, the scoffer said, where's the sign of his coming? No sign now, he's here, and he's made good, he's faithful. And he's the only one you and I today can trust and rest upon. And he's true, for he is inherently true. He says, I am the truth. He's not one who just tells the truth. He does that. But he's the bureau of standards for truth. He is the yardstick of truth. And he today is the truth. Oh, to have one that you can believe in this day when everything is slanted, Everything is propaganda, and they give you, someone said, when you're little, you're given Mother Goose, and when you get older, you're given propaganda. Well, believe me, that's the way it works out. And we find now that he has come to judge and make war. He's not come to die on a cross, and now his eyes are aflame, not as a flame. Now, back in chapter 1, verse 14, and I'm not splitting hairs, his eyes were as a flame as he walked among the churches, judging them. But now it is a flame because he's come to judge this earth and put down its unrighteousness. Now, the many diadems indicate that he will be the sole ruler of this earth. And his rulership is going to be a dictatorship, I can assure you that. My friend, if you don't love Jesus and he's not your Savior and you enter this period, I want to tell you this. It's going to be the most uncomfortable period you've ever entered because he's a dictator, and he's going to rule this earth, and a bird won't cheep, and a rooster won't crow, and no man will move without his permission. He's king of kings, and he's lord of lords. Now, what is the name here at the end of verse 12? written which none but himself knew. Well, he's given four names which correspond to the gospel. First of all, he's called King of Kings, and that corresponds to the gospel of Matthew, for Matthew presents him as the king. And he's called Faithful and True. In the gospel of Mark, he's presented as the servant of God. And the important thing about a servant is not his genealogy, but can you trust him? And is he truthful? Those are the two things that are important. And then he's called the Word of God here. And in the Gospel of John, he's called that. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was made flesh. Now, what is this name that no one knows? Well, I have a suggestion to make. That corresponds to Luke. And in the Gospel of Luke, he's presented as Jesus, the Son of Man. And that's the name here, Jesus. And today there's great familiarity with that name, both in swearing and blaspheming and 
in those that are trying to get familiar with him. But that's a name that you and I are going to probe throughout eternity. He's Jesus, the Son of Man. Do you really know Jesus? Well, no man knoweth the Son but the Father. And here, when he comes, he has a name that no man knows but he himself. And that's the reason Paul could say, not at the beginning of his ministry, but at the end of the ministry, before he was executed, he says in Philippians, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. No one knows the Son but the Father. And I think that that's going to be one of the things that's going to make heaven heaven is to come to know Jesus Christ. How wonderful it's going to be to know him. And friends, when I say that, it's going to take us the rest of eternity really to know him. He's so wonderful. You know, there are many people that when you get to know them, they're not very exciting folk, are they? But the more you know Jesus, the more exciting that he gets. And he says in John 14, 7, "...if ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also, and from henceforth..." Ye know him and have seen him, that is, in the person of the Son. And then in verse 9, Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, Show us the Father? And then again, in that great high priestly prayer that he prayed in John 17, he says, This is life eternal that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Well, we've started the school. When you come to him and find him that he's your Savior from sin, you're in the kindergarten, and then you begin to know him. And I want to say to you that since I've retired, I have set before me a goal. I want to know Jesus better than I do. And I get up every morning. I did this morning. I went to the window. I looked out. It was a foggy morning here in Southern California. But I said, Lord, thank you for bringing me to another day. I love you. I love you, Lord Jesus. But, oh, my, you seem so far away at times. I want to know you. May the Spirit of God make you real to me. The name Jesus, oh, what it means. And what a person that he is. Now, friends, there's something else, and I can't develop it, don't have time, but I suggest it. We're going to know one another there. Really, I don't think we know each other as we should. I find I'm greatly misunderstood. I make statements here on the radio, and I get letters that I'm almost shocked how I've been misunderstood. And I say something, and I'm misunderstood. But there we're going to know as we are known. And I think that'll be good. And then we're going to know ourselves. That's going to be a great thing in heaven. And I think another thing, we're going to know our wives. I've already said this before, but when I sat on my patio trying to rest up all summer to recover from hepatitis, which I didn't even have, but it did accomplish something, enabled me to rest and begin to do some thinking and sit there with my wife and I got acquainted with her. And it was quite wonderful. And you know... When I discovered the sacrifice that she's made and how faithful she's been down through the years, well, I think that I'm going to get acquainted with her in heaven, and that's going to be wonderful. I wish I could talk to you about that, but I've got to move on. Now, verses 13 
through 16. Notice it says, "...and he's arrayed in a garment sprinkled with blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and pure. And out of his mouth proceedeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron." And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of God, the all-ruler. And he hath on his garment and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Now his garment is sprinkled with blood. And we are told here he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of God. And that takes us back to Isaiah. You remember The 63rd chapter. I wonder if I dare take time to just turn there and for a moment read, Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Basra, and that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength? I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the winefat? I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me, for I will tread them in mine anger, and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. That refers to the second coming, not the first coming of Christ. And then we're told he'll rule them with a rod of iron. That takes us back to Psalm 2. And he will be, as we've said, a world dictator. And he is the one that God says, I'll set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has sent unto me. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee, that is, from the dead. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance in the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. How will he get them? Didn't get them at the first coming. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That's what John's talking about here. His coming to this earth, the fury of his wrath. That his second coming is in sharp contrast to his gentleness at his first coming. However, both reveal the wrath of the Lamb. The armies of heaven are evidently the legions of angels that do his bidding. And now we come to the war of Armageddon. And this is the final battle. Verses 17 and 18. And I saw an angel standing in the sun. He cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together under the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. Now, if there is one passage of Scripture which is revolting to read, this is it. And you'll notice that God concluded it at the end of his word to remind us how revolting and nauseating to him are the deeds of the flesh. Men who live in the flesh will have their flesh destroyed. And this is an invitation at the end of the battle of Armageddon to the carrion eating fowl to come to a banquet on earth where they're going to have blue ribbon flesh an A1 grade to eat, kings and the mighty men of the earth. It is frightful, friends, 
to rebel against God because he is going to judge you someday. And this reveals the heart of man and how dreadful that heart really is. Now, for the first time, hell is opened up. Now, will you listen? And I saw the beast. I'm reading verse 19. And the kings of the earth and the armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet, the Antichrist, that wrought the signs in his sight, wherewith he deceived them that received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. They, too, were cast alive into the lake of fire that burneth with brimstone. Now, the beast is the Antichrist, the political ruler, and the religious ruler, both taken, and the rest were killed with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, even the sword which came forth out of his mouth, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. What a frightful picture this is. Now, the beast and the false prophet defy God right up to the very last. They dare to make war with the Son of God. And he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh at the utter futility of their efforts. It's preposterous, but such is the rebellion of man against God. And the outcome was inevitable. And the two arch rebels and tyrants, the Antichrist and the false prophet, have the questionable distinction of being the first who are cast into hell. The devil hasn't even been put there yet, friends. And the question arises, is the lake of fire literal? Well, let me give you something to think about, because I'm going to come back to this when we get over to chapter 20. If it's not literal, it depicts that which is worse than a literal fire, a brimstone. Think of that until we get to chapter 20. Now, will you notice... The other thing is, what is the sword that goes out of his mouth? A millennial friend of mine, he and I are very good friends, he asked me laughingly, he says, you don't mean to tell me there's going to be a literal sword come out of the mouth of Jesus. Well, I said it would be if it wasn't that it's made clear in the Word of God what it is. And it's the Word of God. It's His Word. For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And Paul says in Ephesians 6, 17, "...and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity the meek of the earth, and he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips." Shall he slay the wicked? That's Isaiah 11, 4. Now, do you notice that it's made clear that it's the Word of God. It was the Word of God that created this universe. It's the Word of God that will save you. It's not by corruptible seed, but incorruptible by the Word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. That's the way you're born again. And it will be the Word of God that will destroy the wicked at the end of this age. Did you notice up to this time Satan's not in hell? <laughs> We're going to see that next time.